Hi Kerstin. Another SpaceX launch have been done just these days. No, 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 no. No, no? They they got postponed because of wind, the suckers. Oh, <laughs> oh come on. That is great news to hear. When will we eat? I think in a few days' time. Okay. Well. So, they're still going up, but they got delayed. <laughs> yeah, well, still. Small not sure. wins. Not sure what we are going to do with all these... Small satellites illuminating the skies. I think I saw some few of them the other day where I was at Silent Spring at the oh, observatory. Really? Yeah, I, I have information. Not information, but one after the other and after the other. Oh, no. I have to check the photos. I didn't have the time to get the photos. I was actually taking some few photos of Orion. Oh. Why? Well, perhaps I will even know. <laughs> Maybe already. you should listen to our previous episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just horrible. Anyway, I'm Kirsten Banks. And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Hello and welcome to our fifth episode of season three. We made a bit of a boo-boo last time. Yeah, we were saying that uh, episode 31, that was the previous episode, was episode three of season three, but actually was episode four of season three. But you know what? Three plus one equals four uh, out of 31. Uh, huh? uh, uh, Redeemed. Okay, okay, okay. Well, that means that it is our fifth episode for season three. Yes, welcome. And today we're going to be talking about a nice little telescope. But we'll get to that soon, mm -hmm. because to start off, we're going to start with a bit of feedback. Yeah, we have feedback from last episode that we couldn't uh, mention, because we were just talking too much about stellar evolution. Just classic scientists. Yes, <laughs> as usual, it's happening to us. Our friend Cafuego in Twitter, actually, he tried to get an image of NGC 1300. Ooh. That was the one that we were mentioning a couple of episodes ago, at the beginning of the year. But uh, as he couldn't, he just sent us a very nice image with a detail of a non-supermoon. A non-supermoon. A non-supermoon. And, <laughs> and that image, very nice, that we retweeted, I think, but we can do that again. Uh, he took it at the very beginning of the year with his very own iPhone attached to a 20-centimeter meter telescope. Excellent. That's my favorite type of sky photo. Just a phone attached to the back of a telescope. Yeah, and we have said that some few times. You don't need very sophisticated equipment to try to get some photos of the sky. You can Not at all. You can actually now do it with some of the new phones. Mm. They have the sky mode or the night mode, which is very nice. And that opens to everyone to try to, to get a better sense of what is happening in the sky. That's right. Cafuego also sent us another photo for our previous episode that we were talking about the Rosette Nebula. Mm, yes, I saw uh, that photo. It was beautiful. Yes, so it was not exactly the Rosette Nebula. I mean, it was a very wide field image of Orion and mm. the constellation of Orion and the surrounding area, including the Rosette Nebula. You can distinguish very well the reddish roundedness mm. of the Rosette Nebula in there. And he took uh, that image using a very standard Nikon D5300 camera with a 24mm lens at 30 seconds 
in February 2019 from Victoria. Beautiful. Thanks for sending those through. Yeah, thank you. But also on our feedback list for today is last episode. We talked about stellar evolution and we talked about the different stellar classifications for stars where the classic mnemonic is, oh, be a fine gentleman or girl, kiss me, which is slightly problematic. So we went out to ask you guys, send us your thoughts. What is a mnemonic that you use or what's mm. one that you've come up with? And we've gotten a few responses. Yeah, we got the answer of, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me, because we didn't mention that one. Mm, yes. And well, that have been very common. I know that many people don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree, problematic. And I agree with that. That is why we have been trying to find another mnemonic rule to try to remember this classification. And some few of our listeners, thank you very much, provide some nice answers. For example, Ian Holder said, Only bad astronomers forget generally known mnemonics. That's a good one. I like that one. <laughs> Another from Ben Montent. Only boring astronomers find gratitude knowing mnemonics. Another good one. I, I feel seen. Yeah, so it's <laughs> reading this one. A bit connection, all of them, you know, with astronomers, only astronomers doing something with the mnemonics. And then we have our friend Rami Mando from spaceaustralia.com. He provided an interesting one. Originally, birds ate fried green kangaroo meat. It sounds like something out of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, it doesn't have any sense. No, I do not like green kangaroos and ham. <laughs> <laughs> but he also provided a link to a compilation of plenty of these mnemonics that someone have been doing for some few years in different summer courses in the US. And we have chosen some few of them. That we are going <laughs> a few to try. funny ones. Yeah, we are going to try to read them to you in a funny way. A fun roulette mnemonic. <laughs> uh, and let's see which one do you prefer. Okay, so uh, Kirsten, can you please start? Okay, the first one is only buy apples from grocery kind markets. And the second one, Angel. Oranges, blueberries, apples, fruit, guava, kiwi, mango. <laughs> well, that's a good way to remember all of my fruits. Here's another one. Our beautiful astronomy floor gets kind of muddy. <laughs> One big and ferocious goat killed me. Wait, if, 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 oh, it killed you, if it killed you, how are you talking? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's one. Oh boy, Adam feels good killing mum. Oh boy, indeed. <laughs> Why all that killing? That is not good. Oliver became a fine gentleman killing mice. Quantify a fine gentleman as someone who kills mice, but okay. I mean, you know, some people are really scared of mice. True, true. Here we go, here comes another one. Oh boy, a flying gorilla kicked Mamba. What is Mamba? Mamba, I think it's a type of dance. Oh, okay. Oh brother, a fat gremlin kicked Mickey. What? I don't know, <laughs> that is what they said. Oh, here's a, here's a fun one. I like this one. Orion's belts are facing Galileo's kinetic meteors. Funny, but I don't know if you would remember that one. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> Optimistic Bear acquires financial grant knitting money. Okay. Interesting. 
I'll think of that next time I need more money. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's another one. Only broken asteroids fail to grasp kinetic motion. Okay, now Kirsten just changed it because originally it was only... Oh, androids! And, yeah, that is why it is connected. <laughs> only broken androids fall to grasp kinematic motion. But asteroids, asteroids works too! Asteroids yeah. also works, yeah, <laughs> for sure. More astronomers. Occasionally, brilliant astronomers forget grand nightly monasteries. Kingly. What? But that also works too! <laughs> okay, here we go. Often bright asteroids fall gracefully, killing many. That's a good one, I like that one. I think that that is the best one. Often bright asteroids fall gracefully, killing many. That is a good, a good one. one. It's a good one with killing in it. Yeah. We also have a couple of them in Spanish that um, we received from some of our Spanish listeners. Thank you very much. Although I know that the majority of you should be, you know, perhaps don't speak Spanish. Please let me let me say them because they are also funny. And there is one that is particularly one for Spanish speakers. The one that I said it is particularly one is from my friend David Caladí, who is an astronomer at the Cal Alto Observatory in, uh, in Almería, the south of Spain. And he says, Ojalá Bartolo alcance fama y gane kilos de millones. Which you can translate in, I hope that Bartolo will be very famous and he will win a lot of millions. Something like that. There is another one from at facu uh, underscore arcav, that is in Twitter, didn't get the name, sorry, also in Spanish. Osos buscan alcanzar fácilmente el gran kiwi maduro. What does that one mean? That is again going with bears. <laughs> Only, um, I would say, bears are looking to try to get easily the ripe Great kiwi. Okay, Sounds so like... more bears and more fruit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we kept the last one for now. Oh, the best, send me the best to last. And please go, you, you do it. Okay. Be better than me. <laughs> Are we gonna, we gonna, should I say the word and uh, bleep it? I, I will say just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Our uh, listeners uh, are clever enough to understand this, what, what that is about. This is a this is a clean a clean uh, a podcast. Anyway, our final one. Oh, Beetlejuice, are you beep going to kill me? That's <laughs> 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 a good one. Very proper for these times. Thank you, Leopoldo Martin. That is great. <laughs> yes, thank you, Leo. Um, he actually was a student of mine when I was uh, there in Tenerife. Oh, really? When I was doing my PhD thesis and I was part of the lecture in Introduction of Astronomy. Well, there must have been a very bright student. Mm, he, he Especially was. coming he, he up actually, with his grade. He actually was. He was actually was. He was actually the, one of the best of our students in that year. Well, there you go. So, we are connecting that with... Yes, we now have some space news and Angel, you, 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 love, you love talking about Beetlejuice so much. Let's... See what, what's happening with Beetlejuice, what's um, going on? Yeah, well, that is what we want to know, what is happening with Beetlejuice. Uh, we are connecting that very much with the uh, feedback because still uh, everyone is talking about this star that still is dimming. Still dimming? It still is dimming. So I already mentioned that last week I was at uh, 
telescope, at the Anglo-Australian telescope, providing some support and being there aside in spin, I actually had a chance of finally getting some photos and observing nicely all the constellation of Orion and Betelgeuse and yeah, definitely it is much dimmer than what I remember, mm. what I ever seen. I did the estimation doing some, there is an easy way that is called the Argelander method that you can compare two stars with the star you want to get the magnitude. One star is brighter, the other star is dimmer, and you try to put your star, in this case Betelgeuse, in that scale. You are, for example, in one to five, it is four times closer to the bright one, but only two to the faint one. And there is a little formula that you apply and you can get, knowing, of course, the magnitude of these two stars, ah, what you're getting. Cool. And I did with two very famous stars in the Orion constellation. Let me guess. Rigel? Rigel is too bright. Oh, it's too bright. It's too bright. I, I found, ah. I, I started doing it with Rigel and I found it a bit more difficult because it is just too bright. Okay. I was Bellatrix then? Bellatrix Aha. and Saif. Very nice. So I tried with this with these two. But at the end I also did it with Rigel. But the number I was getting was not that good, so I only mm. used the other two. One uh, was given a magnitude of around 1.45 and the other one magnitude of around 1.55, meaning okay. an average of 1.5. Yep. Which was very much... That's, that's faint. The number, but it was, I was happy because it was very much the number that, that Pat could get if you explore into the um, AAF SO, and it was more or less that brightness, the 1.5. And actually, last week, and I'm talking about the third week of January, it seemed that Betelgeuse have reached a plateau, and mm -hmm. it was staying around there, around 1.5. By the way, that when I mentioned in the previous episode that Betelgeuse was around 1.6, that was the minimum of the value that the reporters were making. Yeah. It was still around 1.5. So I have been in around 1.5 for a big couple of weeks. A bit getting dimmer and dimmer, but not, not so as rapidly. drastically. Yeah. Yeah. But in just in this week, it has continued dimming a bit more. And right now, the average number that I have, when you do the average of the last five nights, it is around 1.6. 1.64. Oh. So it is, it is still getting dimmer. It is still getting dimmer. But not as quickly as it was before. No. But it begs the question, Betelgeuse isn't going to be in our sky for much longer, just in general because of the rotation of the Earth and its orbit around the sun, so it will be up in our daytime sky as opposed to our evening sky. If it continues to dim over those six to seven to eight months where we don't actually see it in our nighttime sky anymore... Will we never see it again when I it comes back? So. I don't think so. And actually, that was actually the news that I was going to bring. It was not only talking about what I have done and observing about Betelgeuse, but another astronomer telegram that was sent on the 20th of January. Or astronomer's telegram, for those of you who love puns. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly by the same group of people that have been talking about and raised the alarm of mm. observing Betelgeuse. The title was The Continued Unprecedented Fading of Betelgeuse. That is A Telegram 13410. Edward Ginnan and Richard Wasatonic of Villanova University. Well, they say that in that time, on the 20th of January, the magnitude in V 
of Betelgeuse was almost 1.5, so it was 1.494, mm-hmm. but they also observed Betelgeuse continuously, not only with the, these filters, but also with a few other filters, including the near-infrared, and that allowed them to try to get a better sense of what is happening in the star. They report that it is now the coolest and less luminous yet observed right now, and since September 2019, the star's temperature has decreased by around 100 Kelvin, Mm. while its luminosity has diminished by nearly 25%. And if you put these numbers together in a famous equation that is putting together the luminosity, the temperature, and the radius of a star, that implies that Betelgeuse has had an increase in size of around 9%. Oh, so it's getting a bit bigger. It is even bigger. Remember that some few episodes ago we were mentioning about that it was shrinking? Mm-hmm. because it was what he was observing in the last couple of decades of what we could try to get from the observations. But this episode is actually showing the other way around, that is perhaps expanding and getting a bit bigger. You'd think that if it's expanding, it would get brighter, wouldn't it? Because more, more, well, same amount of light of a larger surface area. Yeah, but... And you should the temperature will go down. Oh right, so yeah, balancing effect. That balancing, mm. yes. So it will actually perhaps will do that in more in the near infrared. I don't, I'm not completely sure about all of this, but something like that. However, they also mentioned that, and I'm going to read as it is in the A telegram. However, as pointed out by others, the current fainting episode could also arise from a spell cooling gas or dust partially obscuring the star. That is also what okay, we mentioned, yep. mentioned in another episode. So the recent changes defined by our photometry seem best explained from changes in the envelope outer conventional atmosphere of this pulsating unstable supergiant star. If these recent light changes are due to an extra large amplitude light pulse of the 420-day period, then the next Midlight minimum is expected during late January, early February 2020. Okay. So if they are correct about the assumption that is happening, what they are proposing, the brightness of Betelgeuse should reach a minimum. And then increase. And then increase yeah. by, let's say, mid-February, late February. Okay, so that, that sounds that sounds all right then. So that is the space news. The space news at the end, it is just please keep an eye. Keep to, an eye on, to on Betelgeuse. Which is exactly the same thing that they said at the end. The unusual behavior of Betelgeuse should be closely watched. Yes, keep looking at Betelgeuse. Check him out, check on him, see what he's doing. And it will not explode as a supernova. No, just in case you didn't know from last episode and the episode before that, <laughs> it will not explode anytime soon. So we can easily explain what is happening in Betelgeuse with the external layers of the atmosphere of this huge, big, big, big star. Awesome. Incredible space news. I don't have quite that much of a, of a space news myself. It's more of a, a personal space news. I have officially left Sydney Observatory. Uh, it's been it's been a long five years. I've five decided years five years. So yes. When, how old were you when you started working there? I was seventeen Whoa. when I had my interview, and I had just turned eighteen when they hired me. 
which was good because a very funny story from my interview. The interviewer asked, oh, do you have a working with children check? Which is, you know, a number that you have to be able to work mm. with children. And um, I said to them, no, because I am a child. <laughs> <laughs> I am still a child. So, but yeah, they hired me just after I turned 18 and I've been working there for the last five years. Mm. Yes. It's it's been it's um, been the end of an era. I think Sydney Observatory has really been where I birthed my love for science communication, mm-hmm. and it is sad to leave. But I'm on to bigger and better things. Starting a PhD, yeah, is yeah. being one of them. And um, I thought it was a little bit too extreme to keep three jobs whilst doing a PhD. That is a bit too so much. A bit extreme. So I thought I'll get my nights back. And we'll we'll start working at Sydney mm. Observatory. But it's been great. It's been good fun. Good to hear that. Connecting with that or a bit related because it is yours. You were in TV the other day. I was. <sighs> I was on TV the other day. And the scientists got a mention. Not by me. Not which by is you. Yeah. Crazy. Mm-hmm. So I was being I was on uh, the drum on ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, so for those in Australia, you would probably know this TV show. Those of our international viewers. It's a TV show where people come together and talk about the latest news. And I was asked to come on on Friday, the 17th of January. And I got asked the question, what is a Beetlejuice? (laughs) (laughs) Which was very fun. But in my introduction, the host said, we've got astrophysicist Kirsten Banks, co-host of The Scientists. And and then I jumped from the sofa. Yay, we have been mentioned in TV. (laughs) (laughs) So we've... We've broken the podcast barrier. We've now been mentioned on TV. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alan Spencer, for making that mention. Yes. But in, in relation to my mission at Sydney Observatory being cancelled, that brings us to our main topic of today, which is a little telescope called the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is scheduled... The mission is scheduled to end on January 30, 2020. So either today, if you're listening to this, when we're releasing it, this episode or tomorrow, depending on time zones, because mm. time zones are hard. So, but Spitzer, it's been a long time going. It's a, it was launched into orbit around Sunday on August twenty fifth, two thousand and three. Two thousand and three. Mm. Wow. So long seventeen long. years ago, mm-hmm. almost. Well, maybe sixteen and a half years ago, and it's a. It's an, so we have Hubble in space. We all love Hubble. Hubble looks at optical and a bit of ultraviolet. But then we have Spitzer that's giving us that other end of the spectrum, that infrared view, which really has opened our eyes to the great mysteries of the universe, hasn't it, Angel? In some way, yes, because there are many things that are happening in those colors that are redder than our red. That is why sometimes I try to define the infrared, (laughs) because just for having a temperature, any object having a temperature is going to emit an infrared. Yes. So the coolest, because they're cool, not because they are after also cool anyway. <laughs> the coolest radians in the cosmos, or the coolest areas, the coolest objects in the cosmos, and here we are talking about the star forming regions, forming stars, and distant galaxies too, they are emitting in the infrared. Mm. And when I'm talking also about distant galaxies, it is because the main emission that we see in optical wavelengths, it is redshifted into the near-infrared. That is also why it is so important to observe in these wavelengths. Indeed. 
And you may know the Spitzer Space Telescope for confirming the presence of seven rocky Earth-sized planets in the TRAPPIST-1 system. Ah, yes, that was a famous one. Yes. Mm -hmm. It also discovered a hidden ring around Saturn. Yes. So we thought we would bring back a couple of fantastic images from Spitzer today. I've got four images. Anhel's got four images as well. Yep. Uh, before doing that, let me just uh, quickly summarize how Spitzer have worked. Oh, it's still working. I would not say that one. But mm -hmm. anyway, you have to realize that it is a relatively small telescope. It is only an 85 centimeter telescope. That's tiny. It is tiny when you compare with, uh, for example, Hubble to uh, 0.4 meters. 2.4 meters, yeah. Or the James Webb that is in some way taking the bridge between Hubble and Spitzer itself. That is six and a half meters. But it was special because the mirror was made of some kind of uh, beryllium uh, composition that it was better suited for the near-infrared. And it had three scientific instruments. IRAC, which is a camera that is just obtaining images in tiny to between the near-infrared and the mid-infrared. Usually we can break what we call the infrared range into three subcategories, the near-infrared, which is a bit accessible from the Earth, then the mid-infrared, and the far-infrared, that we can only observe these two from space. And yes. the far-infrared is just in some moment mixing with uh, microwaves and going into the radio frequencies. So IRAC was a camera, was a camera that had been operating, and the majority of the nice images that uh, we have seen from Spitzer are coming from this camera. Then it has the IRS, a spectrograph, which is just a way of getting the rainbow of the light in mm -hmm. the infrared in different bands too. And finally, MIPS, which is another very low resolution camera because that is observing mainly in the mid-infrared to the far-infrared, not that much in the far-infrared, but just a little bit touching the beginning of the far-infrared. The main thing that we wanted to get with this camera it is uh, knowing the, let's say, the photometry. Mm. How much light we are getting in different objects from in these wavelengths that have been not very much explored in the past. And many surprises have come also from this. Yes. So Spitzer's primary mission lasted for about five and a half years. That is much more than what they expected. They Which is, expected. yes, much more than what they... It's, oh, that's always the way, isn't it? They always last for longer than they expect, mm -hmm. don't they? Which is fantastic. Uh, but it ended when it ran out of the liquid helium coolant that was necessary for two of the instruments. Yes, that is very important. For observing the infrared frequencies, as everything is emitting in infrared light, you really have to cool down as much as you can your system, your telescope. So then you don't get noise from e your own telescope. <laughs> exactly. And what the coolant that Spitzer was using was helium. Yes. Liquid helium that is only a 4Ks. 4 Kelvin. Very, Four very, very cold. So that was able to refrigerate the system till around 5.5 Kelvins. In the moment they ran out of liquid helium, then they, the system started to warming up. They were still able to observe for a bit of time in the mid-infrared or so, but very quickly it was difficult, almost impossible to do that. Mm. But despite this little setback, 
The passive cooling design allowed its third instrument to continue operating for 10 years yes. after that. So, mm -hmm. Because in the near-infrared, that is not as critical. Mm. So still, IAC could be used for obtaining nice images. And I think even they try from time to time getting an spectra using IRS in the near-infrared. Yeah. And, and yeah, and that is the way, for example, they discovered the, the planets in the Trappist system of the many other few images that they have been obtaining in the last few years. Exactly. And speaking of images, I have four. Angel has four. We're going to share with you and describe to you a few images that we think are quite fantastic. Uh, mine have come from the 16 images for Spitzer's Sweet 16 article on NASA's website about the Spitzer telescope. So if you'd like to follow on with that, please do. I'm going to start by looking at the very first one because it's just, it's just so pretty, it's just so nice. It's labelled Giant Star Makes Waves. So it is an image that shows a giant star, Zeta Ophiuchi, and a bow shock. So you see a bright star in the centre and this beautiful red wave in front of it. So it's only visible in the infrared light, which is very, very important. So the bow shock is created by winds that flow from the star. It's a very big, very brilliant star. And it makes ripples through the dust. So you see this huge bow around this star. The star, Zeta Ophiuchi, is about 370 light years away from the Earth and it completely dwarfs the sun. It mm. is a big star. It is about six times hotter, eight times wider, 20 times more massive, and, <laughs> just you wait for this, about 80,000 times as bright. Wow. Yeah. It is a massive star. That will explode as a supernova. Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> no, no soons here. No, no, no soon. No. But even though it's at a huge distance, it would be one of the brightest stars in the night sky if it weren't obscured by dust. Mm -hmm. And that is what it is illuminating. Yes, that is actually a very nice image. It's Fantastic. beautiful. Uh, for me, when I think about Spitzer and say, get an example of what the Spitzer have done, I cannot help myself because I'm studying galaxies. So the first thing that I think about it is the fantastic image that I have here of M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy. And that was one of the very first images that it was taken with this telescope, early 2004. So very early in its days. Yes, very, very early. And that is also part of a legacy of a survey of galaxies, nearby galaxies in the infrared that was conducted using the Spitzer telescope. Um, and I liked this very much because colors are showing us different aspects of galaxies. And for images using only data from Spitzer, usually the codification of colors it is that you put in blue the color that is closer to our eye, to more to the, to the optical light, and then the green the second one and the red the third one. If you do that in that way, the stars are majoritarily blue mm. because they're still emitting plenty of the light in this near-infrared colors. But in the moment you're starting moving into the red, I mean, to, to the other more uh, longer wavelengths, you are picking the emission of the dust. Mm. And that is important to mention this because we have been talking plenty of about stuff from Legends and Nebula and Galaxies in this podcast, and we say that the dust is absorbing the light. 
But it's absorbing the light that we should see in optical, that we should see or we should detect in ultraviolet. But because of that, it is warming the dust. That's right. And the dust is emitting light in the infrared. That is what the one that we are observing here with, with a pixel. We usually do the color uh, codification in the red. And the contrast of observing a galaxy in optical and infrared with using a Spitzer data following this codification, it is just fantastic. Because you see exactly where stars, only stars, and usually all stars are, they are shining very nicely in blue, mm -hmm. and where the star-forming regions and all the giant stars and all the activities happening. They're all nice and... Green, green, red, red. Green, yes. red. green there, it is yeah, there, there. A bit in the middle. In, in, a bit in the mm. middle. Sometimes appears, but it is at the end not, not that much. That's right, because those star forming regions will be very cold. Because mm -hmm. yes. that's what happens when the stars have to form yes. from our previous episode of Stellar Evolution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that image of M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, particularly when you compare with the visible image, is uh, quite shocking. Because the Whirlpool Galaxy, it is a main spiral galaxy that is in collision with another little dwarf galaxy in, mm -hmm. in the north part of it. And when you see in, with this picture, this dwarf galaxy, it is blue. Oh, so very, very starry. Very star, plenty of all stars. And not a lot of gas. Not gas, not a star formation. Mm. But in the moment you see the main thing, which is the main body of F51, you get plenty of details of red with, I, I sometimes I call it the veins of the galaxy, because it seems like you are seeing the structure of the blood inside the mm. a human or a body or a human body, just following all these uh, lanes of dust where in the center star formation is happening. And it is quite shocking and important galaxy. And for us, trying to understand star formation in galaxies, getting this data from a pixel, it is fundamental. Because we can get a sense of transforming the colors, I mean the colors, the, the, the emission of light in infrared that we see into how many stars are forming in that particular time, what we call a star formation rate. Mm. And that helps us a lot to refine our models of stellar evolution, of galaxy evolution, and how stars are forming in galaxies in general. That's so cool. It is, it's so pretty. And the, unsurprisingly, the rest of my images that I have are all galaxies as well, because they're just, they're just yeah, so gorgeous. Ga galaxies are fantastic. So my next one is the Spiral Galaxy M81. And the image from Spitz are just, oh, oh it's amazing. It just reveals these dense dust lanes that Angel was uh, describing just before that just pitter through the galaxy's spiral arms. This galaxy is about 12 million light years away from the Earth, mm. so another close one. And it's, oh, it's yeah. just amazing. It looks like the Eye of Sauron, actually. Mm -hmm. A little bit. In some way, in some way, yes. So M81, it is a very famous spiral galaxy in Canes Venetasi constellation in the northern hemisphere. So it's, I think, it's still possible to see from, from North Australia, even from here, very low over the horizon. We're very low, yeah, yes. Very low. And it is very much connected with the, the, the other one that you have later. But let me go back to my second galaxy, uh, my second object, which is the other object that I always use in my talks for explaining how important the pixel 
observations are or where and why we also need to get the infrared colors of the universe. And that is the very famous image of the Sombrero Galaxy, M104. Because if you see that in optical, that image, and if we can compare with the Hubble Space Telescope, you see a giant kind of elliptical galaxy with a dust lane in the middle that seems that this galaxy had an, an encounter with a spiral galaxy that was uh, eaten by M104 and Dynago, and that is why it's still that dust uh, laying around there. But you cannot see that much, and how big the disk is, the spiral disk of the disk of star formation is. That's right, because you can't really see it that well from the optical image. You can just kind of see the front of the disk. Of course, because first it is an H-go-on galaxy, almost H-on galaxy, so we just not kind of see it from very nice point of view. Mm. And on top of that, all the stars and the and the dust and the gas it is making that it is very difficult to see in the other part of the galaxy. Yeah, you can just see that front part that's facing towards part. us. But when you get an infrared image, it's just astonishing. So you see a very huge blob of blue stars mm -hmm. there in the center. We should have expected from a typical elliptical galaxy. But the disk now appears very dramatically well seen in red. And it is not only that, it is not only a disk. We realize that it is not a disk, it is more like a chakra, and I think it is called this kind of a structure. It is when um, a donut, not, not a donut, but it is mm -hmm. when you have a hole, a big hole in the center of your disk. Yep. A circular corona, perhaps it is, okay. it is called more simply. Sure, I like the donut option, but I'm also feeling hungry. Um, yeah, well, the, it is not very thick. No. And that is why comparing thin. it with a donut would be not. When I'm talking about cha the chakra, if you remember, perhaps you are very young to that, mm. but do you remember the Sena, the Princess Warrior, the TV show? Remember? I no, never watched it. That? Okay. No. Well, she had a kind of a frisbee <laughs> that <laughs> she uses, and it was a chakra, and it was that structure. So it is ah. like a disc, but it is with a big hole in the center of the disc. There you go. Cool. Well, on to my next galaxy. Okay, this one is titled Spitzer Reveals Stellar Smoke, and this one is wild. It is M82. Which, which is a neighboring galaxy, <laughs> neighboring galaxy of M81. M81. Yep. It's also known as the Cigar Galaxy, because when you look at it in the optical, it looks like just a thin cigar, mm -hmm. basically. But when Spitzer appears at M82, Cigar Galaxy, it sees these huge plumes of smoke and dust and it's very infrared gas just hanging about and it's believed that this huge plume of dust and gas has been blown out of the galaxy by winds and radiation from these very hot young massive stars that actually make up the galaxy itself. Mm -hmm, because M82, which is one of the nearest starburst galaxies, mm. meaning that it's forming plenty of stars. Lots, it's lots of stars. It's very famous to see the images using H-alpha filters, that you Ooh. see filamentary structures. Coming <gasps> no! From, I, have, I, have, I took some few of those when That's I was cool. observing in the, in the Canary Islands some few time ago. And also, when you observe that with radio astronomy, looking for the gas, diffuse gas, the neutral gas, the hydrogen coal gas, 
there are plenty of gas falling inside M82. Um, M81, actually, the two galaxies are connected with another few nearby dwarf galaxies. That's that so cool. Space is so cool. We have to talk about that in sun eventually. We have never talked about radio astronomy and neutral gas. Not well, really. There we go. Another, Ideas for new episodes. <laughs> yeah, another idea for another episode. Yeah, we have to do that. All right, and let me guess. Is the next one a galaxy? No, it is not. <gasps> it, Surprise! It is not because I think it is uh, convenient to say some few other things different to galaxies. I can, I can be showing images. As much as we do love galaxies. I, I'm talking about galaxies a lot. But let me share one of the other images that I always use in my talks when I'm trying to explain why we need to observe in different wavelengths, including the infrared. And that was the very first image that uh, Spitzer Telescope took when they were commissioning and before releasing for doing real science in late 2003. And it is the dark global IC1396, which is in Cepheus. It is at around 2,450 light years away. And when you see that in optical, you see just uh, nothing. <laughs> you see nothing. You see a patch of darkness, plenty of stars surrounding it, and a darkness because it is the dust. It is the dust, cold dust. And in the center, it is a kind of an elongating object. It is also called the elephant trunk nebula. In the center, you see that there is some nebulosity with stars forming and so on. But when you observe that in a Spitzer, you get precisely the negative image. Oh. Because what it was dark, now it appears glowing crazily in red colors just because of the emission of the dust. And not only you see that is glowing, but you see the uh, filamentary structures as a different forms that uh, the dust is taking inside this object. Fantastic image. But again, it would be nice to compare with the optical image just, mm. just to, to see the difference and to see why it is that important. And finally, my last image that I want to share is yet another galaxy because they are so pretty and they're so poppy and just colorful is the Pinwheel Galaxy, which is another famous galaxy. Mm -hmm. Beautiful one to look at in optical and now as well as infrared. But this particular image that I've got here of the Pinwheel Galaxy, or M101, it combines data from infrared, visible, ultraviolet, and X-ray. So this image combines images from three other NASA telescopes. So we've got Spitzer as one. The other three are Hubble, then we have the Galaxy Evolution Explorer's Far Ultraviolet Detector. Galax. We, we should be talking about that also in another episode because it was also very important for Galaxy Evolution. <laughs> and then finally, the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Another fantastic observatory. So this galaxy, just for a bit of fun, is about 70% larger than our own Milky Way galaxy. So it's, it's diameter of about 170,000 light years across. And is 21 million light years away. And so the, the Spitzer images and the Spitzer contribution here is the red colours of the image. And again, it's just these beautiful dust veins, mm. I want to say, because like how you mentioned before, they're not so much dust lanes, they literally look like dust veins, like this mm. veiny structure that goes through the lanes and arms of the spiral galaxy. So beautiful. That image it reminds me... I, I was playing actually with the data of that image, one, mm. M101. It is another famous uh, spiral galaxy, face on, very different, for example, to the way we were seeing the, the sombrero. sombrero galaxy. And the combination of these 
different colors with different telescopes are talking about different histories. You see in the ultraviolet, you see the very massive blue stars. In optical, you see the stars in general, mainly a bit of a star forming region too, but here mainly talking about stars. Mm -hmm. In the infrared, you see the star forming regions, yep. the dust associated to, do, to Which those. Which is mostly localized towards the center. The center, but also a bit in the outer skies. A little bit. And then in uh, X-ray, that I think that in, in the image purple is usually. purple, mm -hmm. yes. They are codifying objects that are emitting in these very high energy and, high, and very high frequencies that are usually related to the supernova remnant, the AGN in the center of the... Not the AGN because it is not actually an AGN, but it's a supermassive black hole Where in the center. AGN is active galactic nucleitis, for those who don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, neutron stars and very energetic phenomena. But I remember that I played with that image because for me it was missing a very important part of the puzzle. What's that? the cold gas, the oh. hydrogen. So I added the 21 centimeter image using the very large array in radio interferometer in New Mexico mm. to put everything together. And Get the I can big show, picture. Yeah, I can show you that because it was in very different places. And I sometimes use that image with the different colors, everyone codified in different colors for Spain. And let me, let me remind me to show you that later. <laughs> so it is very important to combine all of that. If we really want to understand, I'm talking particularly about galaxy evolution, we need all the different pieces of all the information that we get from the different wavelengths. We do. Okay, so my last one, it is... Last one! Yes, the last one, although we could be talking about some few more. But we could. <laughs> actually, I perhaps mention another one later. But this one, it is... The Eye of God. Oh, I do enjoy it. It's a very funny one. It does, like, as much as I'm not religious in any way, shape, or form, it, 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 it does but, resemble an eye. But did you say the Eye of God that takes attention from the media? And that's what had happened with this image. And mm. that's what had happened sometimes when I have been talking about this image. So you see, it is a helix nebula. NGC 7293 in Aquarius. That we know, and we were talking about that in our previous episode, it is the very last stage when a star like the sun is dying. Mm. So the center of the of this dying star just condenses and forms a white dwarf star. Very hot, they are small objects, more or less the size of a planet like the Earth. And all the atmosphere of this, uh, the giant star, it is just released into the space and form a kind of cocoon around it. And that is what we call a planetary nebula. Yes. And that image is very shocking, first, because of the colors, it's just a bit of uh, different than weird. I think it is a different uh, codification of colors. There is another one that's showing in the nebula in red. But the point was that we try to understand that the formation of dust is happening in the atmosphere of the very giant, very big stars. When the stars are in a face like a red giant star, doesn't have to be a super red giant, just a red giant star. That atmosphere has the conditions to get some atoms forming together, moving together, and they form molecules. Mm. Molecules, including dust. And that is what later is going to be released into the interstellar medium with the products of the fusion inside the star, of course. What we see in red, it is just these filamentary uh, lines that are radially distributed from the center of the object and that is the dust that have been formed in this star and that is going to be released into the galaxy and that is why i think it is a very 
spotting a nice image beside being called the eye of God. What a great one to end on. That's fantastic. So there we go. We've paid homage to the Spitzer Space Telescope. You've done well for the last 16 and a half-ish years. Well exceeding our expectations by mm -hmm. many, many, many times. Yeah, and, and the last thing I wanted to mention about the Spitzer is that uh, the data have been also used for uh, citizen science projects. Ah. And, and that is the other image I was trying to mention eventually or not, but we are, yeah. so they have these kind of beautiful images of the plane of the Milky Way in some particular regions, and uh, citizen scientists have to identify bubbles mm. in the dust and in the gas, ah. and they have identified plenty, hundreds of them, and that is helping astronomers to get a better way of the constraints of the star formation. I'm trying to remember the name of that... Um, project but anyway it it, it, it was I, th I think it still is running in Sioux universe so you can go and have a look to it it's always Excellent. a good nice way of contribute and to play with beautiful images obtaining with this fantastic space telescope that we are saying goodbye today we are goodbye Spitzer you've done well but speaking of beautiful things that brings us to what's up Oh, yes. What's yes. up? What's, What's up? up? Beautiful. You cannot get anything more you, beautiful. You, you can't. That. Honestly, you can't. Like, it, it, sure to someone who doesn't know what this thing may be, this object may be, once you know what it is, just minds are blown. And I must say, I went up onto my apartment roof the other day because we, we saw a fire. But, yeah, but while we were looking towards the west, we saw this beautiful bright thing. And I said to my husband, hey, do you know what that is? He's like, oh, it's like a really bright star. I'm like, no. It's Venus. It's Venus. And he lost his mind. He was like, what? No way. It happened to me here just two days ago that I was mentioning, oh, look, we were having dinner in the backyard and we finally could see in the, in the clouds could a see the sky nicely, again. nicely to the west. And look, there is uh, the moon is there. Uh, very finally, the moon is back. Yes. And my son said, I cannot see the moon, but I see a very bright star. He couldn't see the moon because from his point of view, the moon was behind a tree. Ah. But he could see what I couldn't see from my seat, that was Venus. Beautiful. The, the same thing, no? and that is Venus, that is a planet, that is the brightest planet, the brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon. That's right. And if you have very good eyes, which I don't think either of us really do, uh, but if you have really good eyes and it's a really clear day and Venus is up during the day, you, it is possible not impossible to see Venus with your naked eye during yes. the day. Yes, and I can confirm that several times I have seen it. And actually, there is one day that I could see at the same time the sun, the moon, and Venus. Ooh. But careful, the sun was almost setting, and then I have the light of the sun coming in, in a uh. bit bush, a lot of angle into my eye, but I could see there in the, in the periphery of the eye, mm -hmm. then the moon and Venus relatively close. And it was because I knew that Venus was going to be very close to the moon, or the moon was going to be very close to me. No? And to it's such, such a great view when they're both really close together. It's mm -hmm. just, oh, the moon, especially when it's a crescent moon. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah, and, and right now it has a very bright magnitude, minus four in Capricornius. Also, when you look... Wait, wait, minus four? Minus four. Minus four? Minus four, yes. Oh, well, minus four. it really is bright. Well, it casts shadows. If you are in a dark place, Venus is casting shadows. Whoa. And I have also seen that. I 
it was a pity that I couldn't get a photo of that. I was at the telescope, at the observing at the Anglo-Australian telescope, and I just went in the early morning before the, the sunrise to see Venus precisely, and I was shocked when I realized what I have read many times in books, Venus cast shadows, that is impossible. Yes, I could see my shadow of myself on the dome of the AAT, and that was Venus. It couldn't be any other thing because we didn't have no, any other light. Else. And still, it was even before the beginning of the astronomical twilight, and we didn't have zodiacal light. Zodiacal light will not cast shadows. It was Venus. My mind you, has just my my. my just, I should take a. You should take a photo of my face right now. Like this is. A, yes. This is crazy. Venus can cast what? Oh. Yeah. Okay. What? It is very bright. Objects. It is very bright. It like is it very bright. Objects. Logically, it makes sense in my brain, but I'm just like, no. Mm. <laughs> what? In ancient times, they thought they it was two planets, and that is why mm. it is called the morning star and uh, the evening star. Yes. And they actually have a couple of names. That, of course, astronomers knew it was the same thing, but general public. And when you see through a telescope and you look at Venus, I always like to do the joke of if the moon is up, pointing at Venus and show to someone, hey, look, have a look to the telescope. And they look, huh? the moon? But the moon is tiny. Yeah. Why the moon is tiny when you're looking through a telescope? Ah, because that is not the moon. It, it is, is Venus. It is no moon. <laughs> it is Venus. It is Venus. And Venus also have face. That's right. And it's so good. There's a great photo that I've seen. I forget who took the photo, but it's a photo of the moon and Venus, and they're just right next to each other, and they're both in the same phase. Mm -hmm. oh. And they're both the crescent. And it's like, mm, well, that's if, so good. if they are together in the sky, they should have the same face, more or less. Cool. Because the light of the sun will be coming. Oh, that in makes the sense. The that makes sense. Well, there we go. So check out, check out Venus for mm, your yes. WhatsApp. Yes, definitely, and you can see that from any part of the world. If it is clear and you don't have clouds that we have have here, or smoke. From, from, well, or smoke. actually, if it's clear and there's smoke, we'll still Venus is still bright enough. Yeah, and you could, but you, still, still, you will see instead of the distinguished white, yes, that bright brilliant white, color, you will see it reddish, <laughs> twinkling even. <laughs> Maybe people will think Betelgeuse has gone supernova because <laughs> it'll be a really bright <laughs> orange <yet>. thing. <laughs> what, anyway, what I saw also, and that probably will be at the wrap-up of uh, this section, it is that um, just two or three days ago, Neptune was very close to Venus, mm. and some observers were able to get nicely the photo of a brighter star in Capricornius, Venus, and uh, Neptune, in just all together in the same That's really part cool. of the sky. Yeah, yeah, very nice. There you go. Mm. Well, that's our What's Up for this episode, episode five of season three. And thank you all for sending us your options for the O-B-A-F-G-K-M. Oh, Beetlejuice, are you bleeping going to kill me? <laughs> okay, but we really appreciate you sending in your uh, options for that. Please always send us questions. If you want us to answer a question, let us know. Don't forget, you can also send us an audio question, not just a typed question on Twitter. You can send us an audio question through we have, email. We had one of those, remember something? We did, we yeah. did. So you, you can have your voice on the Scientist as well. And just by the way, I don't know if any of you may, may have noticed, we actually have a visitor in our recording room today. <laughs> yes, but she has been very quiet. Very She's quiet very little listener. Nice. She's uh, our, my little dog, Lucia. 
and she had been just asked when Kerstin arrived, because we are recording today again at my place, and she just stayed there under the table doing nothing. She's she, very cute. She is very cute. So she is, she is very nice. So yes, she has been listening to all of that. Probably she has been strange of listening to me for so long talking in English because I only talk to her in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> she must be very confused indeed. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't care. <laughs> but anyway, that's us. Send us your questions on Twitter, Facebook and email at the Scientists. And we'll hear from you soon. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear from us soon. Yeah, and we'll be back hopefully in two weeks. That's Thank right. you for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.